He's been advisor to Presidents Clinton and Trump. And now, he's here to advise us all. Dick Morris is on 77 WABC. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yes, I'm stuck in the middle with you. You know, on Thanksgiving, presidents always... Pardon the Thanksgiving turkey. Uh, well, Biden didn't need to because he was out without bail. <laughs> and he was cashless bail. And they had turkey. to run all over the Rose Garden trying to catch him. Imagine. But without bail, he wouldn't come back. <laughs> You're pretty funny, Dick Morris. Yeah. So I'm Dick Morris. This is Doug DePiro. Hello, he, Dick. My Renaissance man friend. Ah, Renaissance um, man. He um, was busy over Thanksgiving. He was at Mar-a-Lago restoring a wall mural for President Trump uh, that was a of a English knight uh, in Middle Ages and uh, had been there, I guess, since Marjorie Merriweather Post. That's about 100 years, Built I think. it 100 years ago, uh-huh. yeah. And it needed... So it was, the, you know, it, the, the paint gets brittle and crack and, you know, pop, so... Yeah. You know. And it was so funny watching him interact with President Trump because... He wasn't talking to him as a politician or as a president. No. He was talking to an older or really younger President Trump who was a building, a builder. <laughs> and they were in the, you know, I've been they're working into with, their own language. I've been working with guys like that all my life. It's amazing. Yeah, you but know? were any of them president of the United States? No, but, you know, the same thing. You know, were any going, of them president of the United all right, States? All right, point taken. Point taken. <laughs> okay. They were not. All right. <laughs> so, so that's but, you know, it's funny. He was telling me, he goes... You know, I, I, I touched a couple of areas up uh, in, over the years where I used a magic market, too, with a, and I rubbed in, and I go, get out of here. You did not do that. Like, he was funny. <laughs> he goes, no, I'm telling you, I did. <laughs> we have, like, a conversation. Two guys on the street. But he talks so, like uh, me. I don't know what to say. So, happy Thanksgiving, everybody. Oh, hold on a second. Hold on. Happy birthday to you. Tomorrow's oh, yeah. your birthday. Tomorrow I turn... 75. 75. And yeah. I think uh, we got somebody yeah, to say happy birthday to you. Hold on. Breaking news. WABC. Breaking news. Happy birthday, Dick Morris. You're oh. now. Who's that, You're John? You're me again. Hey, who let the cat out of the bed? <laughs> I think I did. <laughs> hey, John. It's nice for you to be older than me. Keep, keep it going. I hope you always stay older than me. That means we're both going. Yep. <laughs> that's good. You got it, kid. Thank you. See that? You you know people. Yeah, that's cool. So let me tell you the uh, the the real story of Thanksgiving. And and uh, while I'm at it, at the American Civil War, um, in the 17th century in England, uh, the big fight was over whether to be. Catholic, which it used to be, evangelical Protestant, which was very fundamentalist, Martin Luther, John Calvin, uh, very uh, Oliver Cromwell, very fundamentalist, meaning get rid of the church, get rid of of everything, you just go by the gospel. Or the third course, which was what Henry VIII set up when he left the Catholic Church, which was the Anglican Church, the Church of England. That became here the Episcopalian Church, and it's mirrored today in in Protestant religion. You have the Evangelicals and you have the uh, the Episcopalians, and they're very different in their approach to the gospel and everything else. Well, in seventeenth century Britain, England, they took this very very seriously, and um, in the early years of the decade, around sixteen oh seven, the uh, Puritans were really coming into ascendancy, and uh, eventually they took over England. Oliver Cromwell became the leader. They actually toppled Charles I, the king, and executed him, beheaded him, and took over the country and abolished the monarchy, and with it abolished the Anglican Church, the Church of England, and went to the Quaker Church. And when that happened, the royalists, the patricians who had backed the king and were noblemen and were part of that, ran like hell to get out of the country before they lost their heads. And a favorite destination of theirs was Jamestown, Virginia. So they went to Virginia, and uh, first a few of them, and then more and more and more, and they set up the Virginia colony. 
Meantime, in England, Cromwell went from victory to victory, and then Cromwell died. And after he died around 1630 or 1635, there was nobody left to really lead the the Protestant armies, and they began to lose to the establishment, the Church of England, and uh, that led to a restoration of the monarchy ten years after Cromwell's death. Charles II became the king. And when that happened, the Puritans, who had led the revolution with Oliver Cromwell, left the country because they were all really scared uh, of losing their necks. And uh, and they said they migrated to the U.S., but they went to Massachusetts. They went to Plymouth Bay, uh, and they were the pilgrims. So America was started with two completely separate classes of people in two completely separate locations. The patricians, the rich people, the aristocrats who were in Virginia. And what, what religion? What, they were different, right? They were uh, uh, they were Episcopalian or right. Church of England, right? And then the uh, Protestants, the uh, the the Puritans, uh, who were in Massachusetts, Plymouth Bay. Those are pilgrims. So we had those were pilgrims. So we had two completely different locations: one north, one south. No communication between them, and different kinds of people. The people in Virginia were aristocrats, landowners, slave owners, planters, plantation types. Mm-hmm. And the people in Massachusetts, the pilgrims, were small businessmen, individual entrepreneurs who set up their businesses and, and valued so much the freedom that that enabled them to do. And they grew into separate societies. And basically, the American Civil War was the, cra- the clash of those two societies. Mm. The uh, the class oriented agrarian planter dominated uh, slavery slavery based society of Virginia, mm-hmm. or the Puritan egalitarian society of the Pilgrims in Massachusetts, and that was the American Civil War. But it was predated by the English Civil War, and the Royalists in England became the Confederates, and the Pilgrims in the North became the Union. So uh, overall, we're pretty proud to be American. And I'm proud to be an American, where at least I know I'm free. And I won't forget the men who died, who gave that right to me. And I gladly stand up next to you and defend her still today. That's just a great history to know, Dick Morris. It's it's great to know. Well, it influenced everything in American society. In the American Revolution, the Tories were really the aristocrats, and the 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 patriots were really the Tories. Tories, the those who sided with England. Mm -hmm. But there is a story that is a romantic story about the Pilgrims that comes to us from Eric Metaxas, who is a great author and does his own radio show. And uh, and it's this, it's a true story about Squanto, S Q U A N T O. I'll read it to you from Eric's novel. I mean history. A Porcasset Indian named Squanto was bought by a group of Confederate friars. Squanto was a slave. Was a, a Catholic, Catholic friars. Catholic. Yeah. Squanto was a Squanto was a an Indian living with the Plymouth Bay Colony was, and uh, when the when the troops came, they enslaved a bunch of the Indians and sent them back to England as slaves. Hmm. And uh, Squanto was bought by a group of Catholic friars who evidently treated him well and freed him, even allowing him to dream of somehow returning to the new world to his old home, an almost unimaginable thought at the time. Around 1612, Squanto made his way to London, where he learned English ways and language. In 1618, a ship was found, and in return for serving as a uh, as an interpreter, Squanto would be given a one-way passage back to the New World. Mm. After spending a winter in Newfoundland, the ship made its way down the coast of Maine and Cape Cod, where Squanto at last reached his own shore. Meanwhile, in the bleak November of 1620, the Mayflower passengers, unable to navigate south to the warmer land of Virginia, decided to settle at Plymouth the very spot where Squanto had grown up. They'd come in search of religious freedom, hoping to found a colony based on Christian principles. Their journey was very difficult, and their celebrated landing on the frigid shores of Plymouth proved even more so. 
forced to live in miserably cold and wet conditions. Many of them fell gravely ill. Half of them died during that terrible winter. One can imagine how they must have wept and wondered how the God they trusted and followed could lead them to this agonizing pass. Many seriously considered returning to Europe. Hmm. But one day during that spring of 1621, Squanto walked out of the woods to greet them. He spoke perfect English. In fact, he'd lived in London more recently than the Pilgrims had. And if that weren't strange enough, he had grown up on the exact land where they had settled. Because of this, he knew everything about how to survive there, not only how to plant corn and squash, but how to find fish and lobsters and eels and much else. The pilgrims adopted him as one of their own, and he lived with them on the land of his childhood. No one disputes that Squanto's advent among the pilgrims changed everything, making it possible for them to stay and thrive. Squanto even helped broker a peace with the other local tribes, one that lasted 50 years, a staggering achievement, considering the troubles the settlers would face later. So the question is, can all of this have been sheer happenstance, as most of the versions of the story would have us believe? The pilgrims hardly thought so. To them, Squanto was a living answer to their tearful prayers, an outrageous miracle of God. Squanto died in 1622. These are the historical facts. May we be forgiven for interpreting them as, un as answered prayers of a suffering people with a warm touch of the cold dawn of our history by an almighty hand. More great history. That really is beautiful. So, we are now back to the world of politics, and uh, we'll come back after this break. <laughs> it's Sunday, and you know what that means. Here's Dick Morris on 77 WABC. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right, here I am stuck in the middle with you. That was a great history lesson, Dick. That was beautiful. Um, Billy from Queens has an addendum to it. So, hi, Billy. Mr. Morris, that was a great history lesson. Thank um, you. What, a lot of people realize, so believe it or not, um, slavery, is, of course, it was horrible for the black people down south, but it actually messed up the white people because right. they had free labor. It created a fat, lazy, stupid race of white people that it still did. exists today because they could just sit around drinking, uh, you know, whiskey, smoking tobacco. Yeah. Mint, right. mint tuleps. Even, yeah. No, and, you're right. And, 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 and the Innovations and inventions were coming from, and it's so. not—it's not just that. It's that they—it's uh, that they were morally depraved, because we have to understand that rape was the norm of the southern plantation. That's horrible. This was not something that happened occasionally and was criminal. This was the normal functioning of the plantation. Even Thomas Jefferson uh, gave birth to a uh, to a mulatto, to a mulatto baby, and for. Five or seven years had an affair with Sally Hemings, his slave, uh, freed her eventually, but after a while. Uh, and so morally it was undermining. It also undermined the value of education in the South because who needed an education when you were just going to be a planter and you had your, your life cut out for you, you just inherited, mm. you just stepped into the role. So the value of education, hard work, upward mobility, entrepreneurialism – that was installed with the pilgrims and then reinforced by immigrants who arrived here illiterate and penniless uh, was, was an experience that much of the South never had, and it really crippled them for many, many years. It's kind of like uh, welfare. People yeah. don't have to do it, anything it was, like now. Welfare, that's now. Just like welfare, you're right. right. So Donald Trump has been, uh, has been savaged oh, uh, for three weeks. Um, They've appointed a special prosecutor to go after him, just one man, to go after one man uh, for at least three and maybe four or five or six or seven or eight or nine or ten or fifteen different crimes and whatever they can find. And uh, 
there's been an assault on Trump. Oh, so horrible. And everybody is, and it's a soft assault. People are saying, oh, I love uh, Donald Trump and I honor his achievements, but why couldn't we have DeSantis? Right. And it, it's really a, a subtle slap exactly. and put down of Trump as if his whole experience as president and these four amazing years of accomplishment where he did everything we had to do and completely changed the course of the country and set it on a course to be able to succeed in the world that now is being eroded but can be restored, as if all of that is just, oh, yeah, he did, I guess. Well, anybody would have done it. DeSantis would have you done know, it. I just had Pence a- would have done it. Anybody would have done it. The fact is that no other president in American history did it. You know, I just had a thought. Um, the Democrats and the media are actually creating useful idiots. In other words, the way they're talking about this and what they're doing with him, people even that like Trump are starting to say, oh, well, I don't know anymore. Yeah. They're creating right. the useful idiots. Well, that's their job. That's yeah. their job. But Donald Trump is now at 55% of Republican primary voters want him to be the nominee for president. Good. DeSantis is in second place at 25, 30 points back, and everybody else is in single digits. DeSantis is not going to So Donald Trump has an answer to all of these types. And you bet he's still standing. You ain't knocking him down. You know how you say yeah. you knock the guy down, he gets back up. You're not even knocking him down. So let's look at the special prosecutor. What he ha- what he's doing is investigating first. Did Donald Trump uh, foment a revolution on January 6th? <laughs> Answer, are you kidding me? Really? Uh, it would be the only unarmed revolution in history where the leader of the revolution, Trump, said go home and go to bed. <laughs> <laughs> Um, it's true. And and where he called out 20,000 troops to put down the revolution, he allegedly started, but the uh, the Pelosi. regime, Pelosi, canceled it. Yeah. Um, the second charge he's making, they're making is that he influenced, he obstructed the election machinery in Georgia by calling the Secretary of State and saying, please find me 11,000 extra votes. And that's supposed to be obstruction and interference. In fact, what he did was to call the guy who was in charge of the election and say, look, this is a razor-thin margin, and the outcome of the country depends upon it. Please go back and check and be sure you've gotten all of the real votes that are counted here. This is not something that we could lose because of a mathematical error. <clears throat> what the hell is wrong with that? Absolutely nothing. Yeah, and he then, brought attention to uh, and then the, the, the third votes. The third thing he did that they're charging That's what they didn't like. is that when he left Mar-a-Lago, he took documents with him. Now, originally they said these documents were the nuclear codes and God knows what happened to them. The Russians, the Chinese, the North Koreans, the Iranians, they're probably crawling all over this data. Sure. But there's never been any allegation or any indication that Trump did that, that he shared it with anyone. And in fact, a month ago, the Washington Post reported before the FBI before the special prosecutor took over and could shape the narrative, that these were just memorabilia. They were like ashtrays and pens <laughs> that he stole and uh, took with him, and uh, and that they were largely just for his memorabilia or memoirs or whatever. Uh, but until they can make a case that he did anything with these documents that could undermine national security, uh, I think this is just a BS charge that is just absolutely ridiculous. Now, what's the political impact of the special prosecutor? <clears throat> I believe that the fact <clears throat> that on Tuesday, the 15th of November, <clears throat> Donald Trump declared his candidacy for president. And on Thursday, the 17th of November, the incumbent president, Joe Biden, appointed somebody to investigate and prosecute and indict him is a statement of where America has gone. That is absolutely shocking, unbelievable in its impact, that literally 48 hours after a guy announces for president, his opponent, the incumbent president, orders the FBI to investigate him and sets up a special prosecutor to indict him. 
Now, they're giving you the BS that, oh, this wasn't Trump. This was Merrick Garland, the attorney general. You mean it wasn't Biden? It was it wasn't Biden, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But absolute bull. Come on, you can't believe that. That's right. And when they indict a... Uh, when they indict a, a kidnapper, they clear it with the president. They're going to right. indict Trump without talking to him. Right. Um, this isn't, it's obviously, obviously just a ruse to keep him out of the presidency. It's obviously a statement that we think this guy might win, and we don't want him to overturn the current administration, and we are going to use the criminal justice system to get him. Or anything else they have. And, and remember that the grand jury this evidence will be presented to is 90%, 99% Democrat. It's in Washington, D.C., where um, the Democrats got over 90% of the vote. That's the jury pool. And it's the same jury pool that will try him after he's indicted. But will it kill him? No, I think it's going to help him. I think that it's – first of all, in the Republican primary, there's now no room for DeSantis or anybody else. Uh, you either believe Trump is being railroaded in a horribly un-American, Stalinist, vicious, fascist way, or you believe he's being treated fairly like any other American and nobody's above the law. Go ahead and investigate. There's no room for a middle ground here. You think one or the other. Mm. And if you think that he is being railroaded and, and this is a travesty – you have to support him. What are you going to do? Say, this guy is running for president. They're crucifying him. They're going after him. They're persecuting him. They're destroying our democracy in the process. Oh, but I'm not voting for him. I mean, you're not going to do that. Everybody's either going to be for Trump or against Trump. And because of the polarization that they have injected here by naming the special prosecutor, there is no running room for an anti-Trump Republican. There used to be, but there's not now because they've raised the stakes from merely was he a good president or can he win the election to is he a criminal and should he be locked up and thrown in jail? Uh, and would that be an unbelievable outcome destroying our democracy at its core so, by stopping the ele- free election of a president? So that you think would pull the independence? Yeah, everybody. You know well, you're either going to see the world as I see it or as they see it, okay? And the evidence will help and the rhetoric will help. But the point is, in a Republican primary, either you're for Trump or you're not. Mm. And there's no room for soft support in this kind of thing. Um, so so I think that, that this polarizes the election and squeezes anybody else out of it. I told Trump this my analysis of this last night and over the phone. And he was really interested in that. He said, you really think so? I said, yeah, I think that this raises the stakes of the anti-Trump candidacy to a point where there is no running room in a Republican primary for anybody other than you. And, uh, and he said, yeah, it's terrible what they're doing to me. It's outrageous. No other president, not, not, no, nobody else has ever been treated like this. And then I gave him another piece of advice. I said, look, I think you have to make clear that this isn't about you. This is about a candidate for president of the United States being locked up by his opponent uh, because he's running for president. Mm. That's what this is about. This is about the future of American democracy. This is about every presidential election we've ever had. But the president did not choose to indict and imprison and lock up the guy that was going to run against him. This is right out of the English monarchy, you know, where they would go ahead and kill somebody when he was in line for the kingship. And, uh, And I think that this will... Giving it that kind of a spin uh, will be very important in in Trump's winning this election. It's Sunday, and you know what that means. Here's Dick Morris on 77 WABC. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yes, I'm stuck in the middle with you. A candy bar that used to cost a buck and a quarter costs... Two and a half dollars. Hundred dollars. A uh, gallon of gas that used to cost a buck eighty-three now costs four dollars. Yet Americans voted to keep the Democrats in control of the Senate, and while we got control of the House, this election was clearly not the sweep in the mandate that I had hoped for and everybody else had on our side of the aisle. So what happened? Didn't they care about inflation? Wasn't that the issue plaguing them to death? So I investigated after the election, 
and I talked to a guy named Rick Manning, who I think has been on the show. He is the head of Americans for Limited Government and his associate, Robert Romero. And they, I asked them, what percent of Americans do not feel inflation? What percent of Americans live lives where their wages go up, their income goes up, their benefits rise to offset inflation? So when they walk into a store and the prices are double, they don't care. Or they care for a few months until the cost of living adjustment catches up with it. And his answer knocked me over in a, off my chair. 37% of America is inoculated against inflation. Uh, about half of those are elderly who get Social Security. The others are food stamp recipients, welfare beneficiaries, uh, disabled disability beneficiaries, or private sector people who, union people, who work in jobs where, the, where there's an automatic cost of living adjustment built into their ages. So one-third of Americans, about 100 million Americans, don't give a damn about inflation. Let it happen. Let it roll. Doesn't matter to them. Yeah. Wow. So what the Democrats are doing is creating a sea of inflation that, that is absolutely drowning us all. And then they create certain islands where you can hang out and the water won't get to you. Hmm. It, it won't come up that high. And one island is Social Security, cost of living, food stamps, welfare benefits, uh, all of those benefits, or unionized employment. We have a contract negotiation That's that... A- includes a cost-of-living adjustment. So those islands, the people who make it to those safe havens, are okay. Have levies. and Right, levies. And the rest of us are drowning in the high prices and inflation. So the Democratic strategy really is not to fight inflation at all. It's to let it rip, increase it, and then know that their constituents are going to be protected. Hmm. And everybody is going to want to get on the island. Uh, people would say, hey, how do I form a union because that way I can get a cost of living adjustment? Um, how can I apply for disability benefits even if I'm not disabled? Most of the current disability benefits are for people in their 30s and 40s with back pain. Uh, the the number of people who are on disability has doubled uh, from about 4 million to about 8 to 10 million. And only half of them have real illnesses like cancer and heart disease and that stuff, half of them, I'm not implying that they're phony, many of them are quite real, but half of them are illnesses that are more subjective, like back pain. And uh, in fact, they stopped requiring a medical examination in many cases. How could, they, how could that be? Because that you, you swear at an affidavit saying that you're disabled or partially oh, disabled. Really? And uh, about, so the number of people on disability is now 8 to 10 million whereas uh, 15 years ago it was about 3 to 4 million. And then you have food stamps. Uh, so many people are eligible for food stamps and don't apply. But Obama worked hard on outreach to sign everybody up for food stamps. And you've you got to get on food stamps because that way the food inflation doesn't affect you. It's mm. not a big problem. So what they're doing is creating a miserable environment for all of us screwing up the whole economy. So people run to the safe haven and cling to them like a uh, like a piece of driftwood when your ship is sinking um, because it's the only way you can survive. Uh, you have to join a union. You have to apply for benefits. You have to get on the federal dole because that's the only way to make it. In the meantime, what happens to the economy? With this level of inflation, currency becomes increasingly valueless. Uh, yeah, we adjust the cost of living for, you know, your, your, your lunch and your expenses, but how about your retirement savings? There's no cost of living adjustment for that. And with interest rates low and therefore returnings r- low on your savings, they're, they're wiped out in no time. Uh, what about the value of your house when they're raising mortgage rates to a point where nobody will buy it and the market value of your house is plunging? So 
in term, real terms, that is your savings, your house, or your career, all the things that will normally entitle you to getting by bad times are now undermined by the Democrats. So what you're saying is this, this is so the Democrats get voted back in. Yes. This so, is all going on, this pain for us. So you have no alternative but to vote Democrat. Unbelievable. Um, maybe you say, I don't care about all this stuff. I have, a, I, have a, I have my home value. Right. I own it entirely. Well, but with high interest rates, you can't sell it. and You can't really mortgage it. And if you do mortgage it, the interest rates are so high, you can't meet the debt service. So they're absolutely screwing up the entire economy and the entire country to create an environment in which only, not only the fittest survive, but the people that are most eligible for government dependence survive. And those of us that are trying to make it without depending on government cannot survive. Let's go to Judith in Brooklyn. Hi, Judith. Hello, Judith. Hi, good afternoon. Um, I have two things to say, if if I may. First, happy birthday Uh, to Dick Morris. Oh, sure. Happy birthday, Dick. (laughs) Many, many more. And guess what? You're one year younger than next year, so that's great. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Dick, wow. Okay. Um, Yeah, happy birthday to you. So I've got two things, a couple things to say, if I may. Number one, um, Anthony Fredo, we call him Fredo. Anthony Fredo Scaramucci, you remember that guy? For 11 days, he loved Trump. Yeah, well, right. He, and, he, and he claims he's a Republican, okay? Yeah. Uh, well, he repeated something this Friday that uh, basically an echo chamber thing that the Dems and Bidens, uh, their lies, and basically saying Trump, he said this, Trump is a threat to democracy. Well, it's the exact opposite. Trump is the protector of democracy. Yes. Thank you very much. He believes in freedom of speech, freedom of whatever. Well, Trump isn't the one trying to cancel capitalism. the election by locking up the other guy. Yeah. So uh, what else do you, what else is on your mind? Okay, so here's the other one. Um, let's say Trump and DeSantis are on equal footing, Dick, in achievements, which is not true because Trump has four years of proven way more achievements. But let's just say, yes. Okay. Well, the amount of lies and smears that were done for six years against Trump um, have exposed have have they've been exposed as just that lies. They don't stick because they're proven yeah. lies by this time for six years. But with the Santos, they will start to lie about him definitely, yeah. and oh, those yeah. lies will not. Excuse me, and those lies will not have been proven false. Yeah. So it will always, you know, it will damage DeSantis' credibility, quote-unquote, sure. I say, well, in, sure the public, in the court of but public opinion. I want so to go back to the first part of your question, Judith, about say that their accomplishments mm-hmm. are equal. The hell they are. Um, DeSantis has done nothing to tame inflation. He's governor of Florida. He's done nothing to create millions and millions of jobs. He's done nothing for America to stand up to adversaries in foreign policy. He's done nothing to strengthen our military. Um, He has performed in two respects, crime and the border on the one hand and early childhood education on the other, and he's done a very good job on that stuff. But that is minuscule compared to the record of Donald Trump, who turned around every single aspect of our governance and of our economy and of our country. It's unbelievable what this guy has done and the comparison leaves DeSantis very much wanting. And, and maybe DeSantis will do great, great things, but he hasn't yet, and Trump has. Yep. And, his, and that's the difference. His time is coming, but not right. soon. Wait till 28. Yeah. Just wait right. till 28. Let's go to Ann in Staten Island. Hi, Ann. Hi. Uh, happy birthday, Dick. Thank you. Uh, I want to thank you so much for that history lesson that you gave. Um, it really meant a lot. And you are the first person that I've heard on this station that actually gives any credit to Native Americans and the things that they did do that were helpful. And it's it's muchly appreciated, and uh, God bless you for saying it. Well, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, there's no question that without Squanto and God, the pilgrims would never have survived. And uh, what what would that have done? It would have meant that America became a 100% slaveholding, caste-dominated country. Mm. It would have meant that education didn't mean much, that the 
Puritan ethic, Protestant ethic, as they say, work hard, save money, get educated, move up, industrialize, modernize, wouldn't have worked. Uh, the whole country would be in a, in a rut of tradition and past and, uh, and rest on your wealth and your credentials. Income wouldn't matter. Wealth would, uh, and royal favor would matter. That's how they all got. I mean, Jefferson was a great Democrat, but he inherited his wealth from his wife, uh, who got her wealth from her father, who got her wealth from the, his wealth from the king. So it's whereas, whereas, you know, everybody in America and in the North uh, got their wealth by moving up in industry. And maybe their tactics weren't so good all the time, but at least they did it themselves. Um, let's go to Vincent in Brooklyn. Hi, Vincent. Good morning, Dick. Buon compleanno. Buon compleanno. What did he Nobody. just tell me? That's happy birthday. Okay, that's, that's what he just said. That. Okay, good thing I have my good boy Vincent. I like it. Yeah, Dick. Nobody speaks enough about the fact that many of the people, the the pilgrims coming from England, and many of the settlers, then and now, were indentured servants. Many of the people coming into Italy right now from North Africa, uh, they uh, pay slavers to get them there into Italy, and when they. Italy, a lot of them have to deal drugs. Nobody taught, sure, nothing compares with uh, the barbarism and the, uh, the brutality of the African-American slavery literally being shackled in chains for uh, all of your life. But these other people uh, were, had to pay off the people who gave them passage here. What a good point. Good point. What a good and point, I, Vincent. Uh, and, uh, and, of course, the... Uh, the Georgia colony was in, almost entirely founded by indentured servants uh, and prisoners who were sent here. But your point about uh, paying off the the people that brought them is is a very very good and I think profound point. Let's go to Russ in White Plains. Hi, Dick. Hi. Um, I'd like to ask you if you think that Hakeem uh, Jazz Hands Jeffries is going to be the next Speaker of the House, and is that yeah. going to be bad for Democrats? Uh, yes and no. <laughs> oh, for Democrats, yes and yes. Uh, I think he will be the next speaker. And bad for Democrats? Well, it'll be the, the House of Representatives will be run by the LIE. No, the BQE. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Jeffries is from Queens and Schumer and, um, Jeffries from Queens and, uh, and, um, so, and, and um, Schumer is from Brooklyn. So the, they'll negotiate the congressional deals. The Brooklyn Queens the Express. BQE. The Brooklyn yeah. Queens Expressway. That's right, and that's not exactly balancing a ticket. It's not exactly giving a voice to the rest of the country. The important thing to remember about Jeffries is how he gets the job. He gets it not because he's the next in line. The next in line after Pelosi was um, was Steny Hoyer former client of mine who uh, is a congressman from Maryland, a moderate Democrat. He went along with Pelosi's agenda, but clearly if he were in charge, he would not have moved the party that far to the left. He had to step aside. And then beneath him was James Claiborne, who is the dictator of South Carolina, who anointed Biden, um, a black leader, uh, but, but a conventional leader, part of the system, who plays the ball as part of it. Jeffries is an entirely revisionist leader with a whole new woke agenda, an entirely uh, woke approach, uh, breaking with the past, very militant, very opinionated, and very dogmatic. And it's significant that the Democratic caucus chose to pass over two reasonable, moderate, traditional political figures to put a revolutionary in charge. And uh, will it help the Democrats? No. I do think it'll help Pelosi because I think she's going to continue to run things. It's Sunday, and you know what that means. Here's Dick Morris on 77 WABC. I was wondering what's going on here. That's the birthday song. Very good.
Very good. Dick, I have a question for you. That's a replacement for happy birthday to you. I have a question, Dick. Um, they could have went with Hoyo or Clyburn. Yeah. What's the mindset of the Democrats that the, that they want to get a radical guy like this in? What is, what's the story? You have to understand that with both parties in America today, it is not the windshield they're afraid of. It's the rearview mirror. Ah. <laughs> they're not afraid of a car coming at them in the windshield. They want to know about the car behind them that they've already passed, and they're worried about it coming up and rear-ending them. Sometimes you're the fly, and sometimes you're the windshield. Yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> and uh, that's because the districts have been drawn by the state legislatures in such a way that the Democrats don't need to be afraid of Republicans, and Republicans don't need to be afraid of Democrats. They have safe districts. That's why, even though we carried the House of Representatives' popular vote by five points, which historically is enough for a gain of 20 or 25 seats, it turned out to be enough for a gain of 10 or 12. And that's because all of the seats are either safe Democrat or safe Republican. If it's a Democratic seat, they put every black they can find into the district. And if it's a Republican seat, they put every gun owner they can into hmm. the district. Interesting. And the result is that they're all scared of primary fights. They're looking in the rearview mirror. And if you're a Democrat, you want to have elected a strong black speaker, head of your caucus, who can satisfy the black community because the issue of getting reelected has nothing to do with Republicans or November. It's how much of a turnout can you generate in the Democratic primary. Uh, let's go to Interesting. Uh, Bruce on Long Island. Hi, Dick. Happy birthday. Happy Thank many you. more. Um, Dick, I wanted to ask you, I was listening to somebody talk about the electoral votes that we can possibly get in 2024. And they said we have a path for 219 and the remainder would be extremely difficult for any Republican to achieve. And I wanted to know what your thoughts on yeah. that is. And well, also, do you trust the, the, the Dominion machines? Well, I don't want to comment on that because there's a lot of litigation. But um, about the, uh, the chances of the Republicans winning in the Electoral College, yeah, they're very good. Because, first of all, they're good. But secondly... You can't look at this as a static situation. Uh, there's a, a, a factory that I think they make, they do shirts or some clothing in Mississippi with 2,700 jobs that closed yesterday, right the day after Thanksgiving. It closed. Those people were all out of work. We're headed toward a period of mass unemployment. We are headed toward a massive recession. Larry Kudlow, who I trust with my life. Brilliant. Um, has, says there are four signs that the that inflate that depression recession is coming. Um, he talks about the contract the constri the contraction of the money supply. He talks about the raising of interest rates and the number of foreclosures and bankruptcies and so on and the layoffs. And you can't look at today's environment and say, well, fast forward the clock to twenty twenty four. When you fast forward it, you're taking it from an economy that's bad to an economy that is absolutely world-class, unbelievably horrible. Now, the democratic strategy in 22 becomes increasingly apparent when you listen to the stuff I've been talking about on this show. The first was blunt the inflation issue by cost of living increases. It is no coincidence that these COLA adjustments came a month before Election Day. Every senior citizen learned in the four or five weeks before Election Day that if their income last year from Social Security was $6,000 a month, it's now going to be 6000 and six. what is that, uh, 6000 It would be a, a, an 8% increase, uh, $6,600 a month. Um, they basically learned that their economics were going to change completely because of inflation. And Republic, when Republicans hollered about inflation being 8 or 9%, they said, yeah, I get a raise of 8 or 9%. That is pretty cool. Uh, and I got this because of Biden. It's like the, the widows and orphans of London town who owe their large pensions to Werner von Braun and his rockets. Oh, my God. <laughs> the... the uh, 
they owe their higher social security benefits uh, to the inflation. And <laughs> That's then, your example you use. And then four weeks before the election, Biden floats a plan to forgive student loans. So there's a whole other constituency right. that uh-huh. he's paid off sure. there. And, you, and why did young people vote heavily Democrat, whereas they didn't in the polling? Student loans. Once again. And why did old people vote Democratic, whereas everybody thought they would be Republican? Social Security cost of living adjustments. And then on top of that, the economists were all trotting out optimistic data. Inflation had peaked. It was coming down. Uh, the Fed was going to moderate its rate increases and mm-hmm. not do three-quarters of a percent each time, but maybe a quarter or even a half, but they're going to moderate it. Everything is kind of working out. And when you looked at self-interest and you looked at what your specific economic situation was as a student, do you want to have forgiveness of your student loan? Do you, do you not? Do you want to get more COLA cost of living benefits on your Social Security and your food stamps and your disability and all of your benefits or not? That was the question. So here's a message you can give your mama. Starting now, I'm looking out for number one. Yeah, great. Lord, everyone around me, I try so hard to please. Still the only one unhappy. Feeling broken down is me. But things are going to change. You have a whole section. You have a whole section in your book about this, don't you? You talk yeah. about this. Yeah. Well, I talk about how the democratic programs have stacked the economy in such a way that they are immune from a bad economy. In your book, the return. In the return, my book. By the way, my book, the return. I guess you've seen it on TV or in the store. Or you purchase it. It comes red. So I haven't, you, you don't need to, to rewrap it. it. Yeah. I, it's not in the airports. I went to every bookstore no, in the airport. It is not in any airport because uh, they do it off the New York Times bestseller list. Oh, son of a Despite beast. the fact that I've now sold 107,000 copies of this book. Right. And it dwarfs the number numbers of the people on the bestseller list. I know. In nonfiction, they won't list it because that cuts the sales at airports. Yeah. Um, but... You know, this if you want a Christmas present for your That's already wrapped. father, your grandfather, <laughs> or for your wife, I mean, come on. Uh, yeah, it's already wrapped in red. Just buy a bow. Yeah. So, um, One of those stick-on bows. Yep. Uh, the return, Trump's big 2024 comeback. Thank you for reminding me about that, man. Um, let's go to Stu in Brooklyn. Hi, Stu. Hey, good morning, Dick, and a happy birthday. Thank you. Dick, is the uh, calling for a special prosecutor in an attempt to gain some leverage in dealing with the House on the Hunter Biden investigation that they no. for? No, that's a good thought, but no, uh, because getting Trump is a higher priority than anything else. Uh, this is a hit with one person in the crosshairs, and his job is to pull the trigger. Trump has gone from being the object of a witch hunt to being the object of a firing squad. Yeah, that's horrible. And when they say this is an investigation, that's baloney. They know all the facts about January 6th. They know all the facts about the archives. They know what's in those documents. They know all the facts about the phone call with the Secretary of State in Georgia. They have it on tape. So what's the investigation? There isn't any. This is a prelude to an indictment a conviction, and an attempt to knock him off the ballot. Now, that won't work because there are two reasons it won't work. The first is that the Constitution gives the requirements for being president, and you have to be 35, you have to be a citizen for 14 years, you have to have been born in the United States. Nowhere does it say you can't be convicted of a crime. Nowhere does it say you can't be in jail at the moment you're running. Eugene Victor Debs, the socialist candidate, ran while he was in prison in 1912 and got one million votes out of 12 million cast. Uh, and uh, Trump could easily run no matter what. And the second way they might try to get him out is there's a provision in the archives law that says if you mishandle government archives, you can't ever have government archives again, which means you're ineligible for public office. 
but the courts have been very clear that that's a law and the Constitution is the Constitution. And you can't superimpose a, con- a requirement uh, on the Constitution by a statute where the Constitution says here is the requirements for being president and the statute said, oh, yes, he can't have mishandled archives. There's no way that they can do that. The Constitution trumps the uh, legislative Interesting. law. More history. Yeah, well, this is unfortunately not history. It's, right, uh, right. it's current. Go to Jerry and Passaic. Hey, Jerry. Hi, Jerry. Hi. Dick? Yes. I'm, I'm reading your book. It's excellent. I'm oh, almost good. finished with it. Good. Thank uh, you. Number one, uh, what I want to say is talk about China. There's a way of bringing China to its knees. Yep. And Trump was started. But the way I would do it, China has to have a banker's license, you know, a nation, a worldwide license. Yep. Take away their license, number one. Delist all their stocks, number two. Number three, deport every Chinese person in the universities. Yeah. Okay, Jerry, let me, Jerry, I got to cut you off because I'm up against a hard break. Uh, a lot of what you say is right, but I have something else on the list. Uh, the United States should sue China for uh, crimes against humanity by releasing the COVID virus. And at its, then the remuneration should be, number one, we do not pay them back any of the debt we owe them. And number two, we um, we take the revenues that they give us from tariffs and we use it for that. Now, you'll say, what will happen? Nobody will ever lend us money again. Our credit will be shot. Baloney. We're the United States of America. We can always borrow money. We can always print money. And uh, we can get away with that, and China can't. And uh, that's the, But that's the answer to your question. Well, thank you for your comments about my book, and please get it. I mean, this is this will really help you understand politics and understand how we're going to win the election of 2024. Bye-bye. Happy birthday, Dick Morris. It's an honor.